So, last week um, I mentioned the gift that my parents gave to me uh, for my high school graduation, an Olympus OM camera. But they gave me a much greater gift uh, than that, and that was the place where I grew up. Uh, when I was three years old, my parents built a house in the woods. Um, they had purchased three acres of, of land. They thought it was in a meadow, uh, but it turns out that it was actually on the side of a hill covered with trees. Uh, they had gone out to purchase it without the realtor because it was out in the boonies a bit, and they were unable to get their money back, so they decided to go ahead and build a home in this place. So basically, I grew up in the woods, and I loved this place as a boy. I spent hours playing in the woods with siblings and friends. There was a creek, at, there's a creek at the bottom of the property with crawdads and small fish. So we would go for hikes, we would make trails, we would build forts. I remember spending one entire summer uh, outside, uh, sleeping outside in a tent. Um, so most of the kids that I grew up with had to make a special trip to a park or a campground uh, to do the kinds of things I was able to do in my own backyard. Uh, it was a tremendous blessing. And so trees deeply shaped my childhood imagination. And we have a rich variety of trees uh, native to Western Oregon, a super abundance of trees and vegetation. Trees like the Douglas fir, Western red cedar, red alder, big leaf maple, vine leaf maple. Um, and there was actually a time where I considered going into forestry as a career. I love trees so much. And we see too from our reading this morning that trees also are very important to the biblical imaginary, but not because of their abundance. They are important, conversely, because of their scarcity. The climate of the Near East is arid, and trees are relatively few in number. And this is a bit hard for us to understand, isn't it? Uh, when settlers came to this part of the New World, they cut down trees to clear uh, areas for farming. Trees were almost a nuisance. And that certainly wasn't the case and is not the case, case in the Middle East. So our New Testament reading from this morning is from Revelation 22. And a key feature of that final chapter of the Bible is the reappearance of the tree of life. And so on this morning, on this last Sunday of Easter, I want us to think about the tree of life and its implications for us as God's people as we hope earnestly to eat of its fruit one day. In real estate, uh, people talk about location, location, location. And this is true of the tree of life in at least several ways. First of all, it's location in Scripture. The tree of life appears in the opening pages of Scripture, in the Garden of Eden. And then Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden after the fall uh, because God does not want them to eat of this tree. And we don't see it again as a physical entity until the final scene of the Bible in the new heaven and new earth. So we really come full circle, don't we? We begin with a tree whose fruit brings eternal life, and we end with the same tree. It's the climax, in a way, of John's heavenly vision. The location of the tree in paradise is also important. In Genesis, we're told that the tree of life is in the middle of the garden. Uh, Ephraim the Syrian imagined that the tree of life was at the summit 
of the garden with God's grace, and that it actually provided light for the garden. Its leaves were luminescent with God's grace. In Revelation, we also see that it is central. It is next to the throne of God. It drinks water from the river of life, which flows directly from God's throne. So it occupies central stage, center stage. It's a place where the people of God dwell with God. It was once centered in the Garden of Eden, and now it's centered in the throne room of God in the New Jerusalem. But what exactly is the tree of life? In the ancient world, uh, trees were a universal symbol of life. And of course, we understand that even better today. In a real sense, we could say that all trees are trees of life. Um, Forests have been described as the lungs of the earth. Like the ocean, they drive the earth's climate and biodiversity. They absorb carbon dioxide, pollutants, and solar energy, and they give out oxygen. They cycle water and nitrogen. They prevent erosion along coastlines and riverbanks. They restore degraded landscapes. Trees clearly have a major impact on all life on this planet, including animals. Uh, Forests contain about 75% of the world's biodiversity. They provide habitats for other plants, insects, birds, mammals, amphibians. And a single large tree, for instance, in a field may host more than 300 species of birds and insects. They use it for food. They use it uh, for a place to nest and reproduce. They use it for shelter from inclement weather and predators. And of course, trees are immeasurably important for us as human beings. They provide shelter and shade. They provide timber for tools and buildings. They provide a wide variety of food, fruit, nuts, edible flowers, leaves, and this includes subpar food, chocolate, maple syrup, olive oil. They even spice up our food with things like nutmeg, cloves, and cinnamon. And the leaves and bark and roots of trees are also used for medicine. Think of eucalyptus trees, leaves. The bark of the white willow tree was the original source of aspirin. And the leaves of the ginkgo tree are used for circulatory and respiratory ailments. There are many other products that we get from trees. Fiber for rope, twine and nets, cork, rubber, latex, gum, dye, varnish. And on top of all their utility, trees have great ascetic value. Many of us have trees around our homes for shade, yes, but also for decoration and ornament. And this is a carryover from the Garden of Eden. If you read Genesis 2 carefully, you see that trees are the main feature of the Garden of Eden. They provided food, but they also provided beauty. And in Genesis 2, the Lord God is described as a planter. And it says there, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice that beauty comes before food. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight. The Garden of Eden was essentially an arboretum. It was a garden or park devoted to trees. But in this garden of life-giving trees, there was one special tree, the tree of life. And this is a powerful symbol of God's life-giving provision. 
So why is the tree of life in this final scene of Revelation? This final scene, if you will, of the Bible. Um, After the fall in Genesis 3, the tree of life takes on a distinct role. Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit. They're driven from the garden so they will not eat of the tree of life. And so the tree of life then comes to represent what humanity lost when they rebelled against God. And so when we find the tree of life turning up on the last page of the Bible, a clear point is being made. Paradise has been restored. What had been irretrievably lost is now regained. The serpent is banished. The curse is reversed. And access to the tree is granted once again. The tree of life is in many ways the fulfillment of the resurrection of Christ. An always vibrant tree creates a sense of an always vibrant life with God. It's an unmistakable symbol of immortality. It's the death of death. And this is the perfect theme for this last Sunday of Eastertide, isn't it? And we see in Revelation 22 there are two specific ways in which this tree of life is life-giving. First of all, it yields 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month. We could go into the symbolism of 12, but on a literal level, in the ancient world, a tree that bore 12 different kinds of fruit and did it all year round would have been impressive indeed. It's a bit hard for us to appreciate, isn't it? Our grocery stores are filled with fruit the whole year round. We have fruit in season and out of season. But for most of human history, fresh fruit was local and it was very seasonal. So we have this tree that bears fruit the year round. It's always fruitful. And not only is the fruit of this tree remarkable, its leaves have power too. As we see on the, on the cover of our worship guide, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. They bring healing. The tree of life is also life-giving because it represents our connection to God. It's the summation of the ways in which God connects to His people. Notice that the tree stands before the throne of God. So it's not in some natural location, out in the woods somewhere. It's in the midst of the city, in the heart of the holy city. Now to us that might seem a bit strange, but it wouldn't have been strange to John's original audience. Let me explain. You remember the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? Uh, The most famous one, and the most prominent one, of course, is the Great Pyramid of Giza. This is the only one that's still standing. But the ancient wonders of the world also included the so-called Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And this is sort of connected with the practice that we see in the ancient world. When kings would conquer a foreign land, they would take spoil, and we tend to think of this in terms of treasure, right? Gold, silver, so on. But the spoil often included trees and plants. If a king took a particular like to a certain kind of tree, it would be uprooted very carefully and, and taken back to the capital city and transplanted to his royal garden. And according to some ancient sources, the hanging gardens at Babylon were built by Nebuchadnezzar, the king who appears in the book of Daniel. And he did it for his Median wife, uh, Amitis, who apparently missed the green hills and valleys of her homeland. He wanted to comfort her, so he planted this exorbitant garden. 
Um, and it was a tiered garden with many trees and shrubs and vines. Josephus says that its defining feature was its wide variety of trees. And this type of garden wasn't unique to Babylon. Uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, who's also mentioned in the Bible, built one in Nineveh. Um, this one is actually better documented than the one in Babylon. Like Nebuchadnezzar's garden, the dominant feature of this uh, hanging garden was trees, fruit trees of every kind, almond, date, pear, fig, olive, and walnut, conifers like pines and fir, cypresses and junipers, and then other broadleaf trees like ebony and rosewood, oak, and ash. And historians are especially impressed by the way in which Sennacherib was able to get water to this garden um, because trees are notoriously thirsty. On a hot day, a large tree consumes about 15 gallons of water an hour. So to ensure proper water supply, Sennacherib constructed a, a sort of complicated, elaborate system of aqueducts, canals, and dams, which stretched about 30 miles outside the city in order to water his special garden. Now, the point of these gardens wasn't to draw attention to the trees themselves, although that was part of it, the point was to bring glory to the king who planted these gardens. And in Genesis 2, we see something similar, where the focus isn't really on the trees themselves, but on the God who placed them there. Um, it's not really the trees ultimately that give life, but it's God. God mediates life through these trees, especially the tree of life. And we see that in Revelation 22. It is God and the Lamb who give light and life, ultimately. It's not some magical fruit of a particular tree. So, what does the tree of life have to do with us today? Well, it's much more than apple pie in the sky. Yes, the tree of life represents the eternal destiny of God's people. It represents His abiding presence, eternal life, but we have work to do in the present, don't we? The first thing we need to do is we must desire and eat life-giving fruit. We must desire and we must eat life-giving fruit. There are two name trees in Eden. The tree of knowing good and evil, the tree of death, if you will, and the tree of life. One represents blessing, eternal life. The other represents the curse or death, mortality. Adam and Eve, of course, ate the wrong fruit, and so were cursed. They were put outside of God's blessings in Eden. And so instead of enjoying this life-giving fruit, which was a gift from God, Adam had to work the ground from which he was taken. And the ground would not yield its fruit easily. It was cursed and required hard work to be fruitful. And so we see a paradigm of blessing and curse, life and death throughout Scripture that continues after Eden. Moses presents this to the people before they enter the promised land, which is kind of like a new Eden. He says, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. So in a way, we have two trees, and the people have a choice. And by the time we get to the end of Revelation, the end of God's revelation in the Bible, there's only one tree left standing in the book, the tree of life. That is because the other tree has been cut down. 
We hear it fall with a resounding thud in Revelation 18. An angel calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Timber! The tree of Babylon is a tree of knowing good and evil. And like the original tree of death, it bears alluring fruit that is a delight to the eyes. This fruit is described in detail. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linens and cloths, ivory, spices, wine, wheat, flour, livestock, chariots, and even slaves. And then this description is followed by a lament. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. So in the same way that Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and can no longer have access to the tree of life, the tree of death is cut down, never to be seen again. Charles Dickens wrote a famous novel called A Tale of Two Cities, but the original tale of two cities can be found in Revelation. We have the story of Babylon, the tale of Babylon, the great city, and we have the tale of the new Jerusalem. And along with two cities, we have two trees, the tree of Babylon. It's a tree of uncleanness, a tree of luxury, wealth, pride, and sorcery. And then we have the tree of the new Jerusalem, a tree of purity, healing, and eternal life. So, we are called to desire the good fruit, the kind that is life-giving. And some have read uh, the river of life and the tree of life that we find at the beginning of Revelation 22 sacramentally. They see the river of life as representing the waters of baptism. They see the tree of life as representing the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, we have a year-round meal, a feast. And this fits into the imagery that Jesus uses in the Gospel of John, where he talks about living waters, which are very much like a living tree. He talks about life-giving bread that comes down from heaven. And he says, uh, so we find that whoever eats the fruit or drinks the water or eats the bread finds life. John 6, 57, whoever feeds on me will live because of me. So with the tree of life, we see the importance of desiring and eating life-giving fruit. But we also see the importance of bearing life-giving fruit. We must also bear life-giving fruit. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, you're mixing your metaphors. So we're supposed to eat life-giving fruit and bear life-giving fruit at the same time? Yes, and I take my cue from the Apostle Paul, who often mixes his metaphors, and from the Apostle John, who says in chapter 7, verse 17, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and He will be their shepherd. So we have a lamb who's also a shepherd. So I feel comfortable talking about bearing fruit and eating fruit together. The tree of life, like I said before, is generally limited to Genesis and Revelation, the beginning and end of Scripture. But it's actually also referenced four times metaphorically in the book of Proverbs. And we see in Proverbs 11.30 that it says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And this is the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And it takes us back to Psalm 1, which describes the person who delights in the law of God. And they are compared to what? A tree. 
a fruit-bearing tree. The fruit is a symbol of the righteous person's action. Their leaves do not wither. This is symbolic of this tree's vitality, its endurance, its faithfulness. And notice, too, that in Psalm 1, it's describing a tree planted by the streams of water. This isn't a naturally occurring tree, but this is a tree strategically placed in a well-watered garden, the garden of a great king. And this idea is echoed throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 52, it says, I am like a green olive tree flourishing in the house of God. Psalm 92 describes the righteous as a, as a palm tree or cedar tree. And it says, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So these are temple trees, cultivated, watered. And the streams they are planted by are like man-made canals or channels. And as trees, the righteous are nourished then and sustained by God. And so Psalm 1 aligns perfectly with John 15, the comparison of Jesus to a vine, and we are the branches. The tree and the branch of the righteous both abide in God's garden. They're firmly planted and rooted in Him. They draw their nourishment and life force from Him because apart from Him, we can do nothing. So we are to be trees. We are to be trees of life who bear fruit. And if we are not trees of life, if we don't bear fruit, that is a major problem. John the baptizer in true form does not mince his words when he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what kind of fruit do you desire? What kind of fruit do you bear? Is it the kind of fruit that gives life? Or is it the kind of fruit that brings death? Remember the lesson of Babylon in Revelation. It's fruit, especially the fruit of the vine is intoxicating. Babylon makes all the nations drunk with its wine. It is the fruit of pleasure, of wealth, of instant gratification. The fruit of the tree of life, on the other hand, is a bit more elusive. It's only given to those who overcome, says Jesus to the church in Ephesus at the beginning of Revelation. One must be faithful. One must wear washed robes to have access to it. So let me finish by reading a short passage from Jeremiah 17, followed by a brief admonition. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the streams and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the ear of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Be that tree. In anticipation of the tree of life in the New Testament, be a tree of life. Bear good fruit so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen.